This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, farming, gardening, and food. Our guest today on Digging in the Dirt is Rana Fouruhar. She's an American author, business columnist, associate editor at the Financial Times, and CNN's global economic analyst. Ms. Afourahar describes herself as an educated coastal knowledge worker who writes for the world's largest business newspaper, the Financial Times. She has three books to her credit, Don't Be Evil, How Big Tech Betrayed Its Founding Principles and All of Us, Makers and Takers is the second one, How Wall Street Destroyed Main Street, and her latest, Homecoming, The Path to Prosperity in a Post-Global World. I have to echo what others are saying about this book. It is an incisive study of how the paradigm of globalization is now shifting. It's an impressive investigation of the negative consequences of unquestioned globalization. It also addresses where does the U.S. economy stand, how it got here, and where it needs to go. I discovered Rana through a short film I watched on YouTube put out by the Financial Times. It's entitled Homecoming, Reinventing Farming and Food Post-Globalization. Welcome, Rana. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Oh, yeah. I was impressed with the content of the conversation in your film on the problems we face. I also was surprised that the Financial Times goes into this area. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they they hired me in part because we missed Brexit. We missed Trump. You know, we've, we've missed a lot of the, um, I guess, the backlash to, to, to globalization, to neoliberal globalization. You know, the FT is actually in some ways at the cutting edge of these topics because it's a paper um, that has catered to the people that are doing business in the old paradigm and they see that it's shifting and they want to know more. Yeah, they're sort of confused as what's happening. I mean, let's maybe we should start with the election that just happened. That sort of plays into some of the stuff that you're proposing. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think the elections of the last few years, actually, and more polarized politics on both the right and the left are in some ways a reaction to the paradigm of neoliberal globalization. And when I refer to neoliberalism, I'm defining it really as the IMF does, which is this idea that money, capital, uh, goods, people can all travel equally smoothly across borders and that that's going to lift all boats. And you know, whilst that paradigm has created a lot of wealth at a global level, because capital has been able to flow so much more easily than labor or goods, frankly, you've seen that wealth basically held by a very small elite. And so I think that's part of the problem. I think that we're seeing a backlash to the wealth inequality that has been driven by neoliberalism, but also some of the secondary side effects, which are huge, you know, long complex supply chains put together by multinational companies have driven down labor costs you know that's put a lot of people in in poverty even if even though it has also created certain lifting you know at the lower end of the spectrum it's created a lot of carbon emissions it's created standards of production that i think are really you know, degrading our planet and um, not having a great effect on labor or on the, the voting public in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in your book, you say it's uh, three things occurred, cheap labor, cheap energy, and cheap capital. Cheap yeah. capital, yeah. And now we're entering a totally new world. Are companies going to have to reconfigure how they think about their operations? 
I think they are, and you know, some of them are digging their heels in. The biggest and most powerful companies, the Apples of the world, certainly the Elon Musks of the world, you know, are really saying, hey, you know, we want to be extra national. We want to operate above the, the, the confines of the nation state with our own rules and our our own ways of doing things. And, you know, it goes back to this, this bargain 40 years ago of from the West, we'll send you cheap capital, we'll outsource jobs and intellectual property in exchange for your very cheap labor. And I think that that bargain is tapped out in the West because people are sick of it. And I think that it's tapped out in the East because China has decided it wants to control more of its own supply chains and do more local hubbing of production and consumption. In terms of cheap energy, well, that's tap, been tapped out since the war in Ukraine basically showed that it's not smart to get your gas from an autocrat. Yeah, everybody's going to try to figure out how they can be energy independent. I guess that's green tech, don't you think? I do. And, you know, I think that that's one of the big opportunities here about how to create more inclusive shared growth. If you look back in history, big shared periods of productive growth tend to happen when there's a, a new technology, a transformative technology like, you know, the railroads or the Internet. And the public sector puts the floor under it and then the private sector commercializes it. And we have that opportunity now and it's happening, but it's happening differently in different regions. The U.S., has its approach, Europe has its approach, China has its approach. And there's opportunity, I would say, from a jobs creation standpoint to start putting the production of things like electric vehicles uh, locally, wind turbines, you know, we can do a lot of manufacturing on site now, and we should do it in many places. We should not get back into this paradigm that we've been in where production gets so tightly monopolized by a single company or a single country that you sacrifice resiliency in exchange for this sort of false efficiency. I mean, this is what got us into a situation where 92% of high-end chips are made in Taiwan, mm. you know, which is not good for anybody. It's not good for the U.S., not good for China. And, you know, it's ultimately not going to be great for the Taiwanese. Mm -hmm. So you're saying regionalization and localization are the future. How so? Well, I think if you look at the last few years, it's almost as though COVID has been kind of a scrim and then the war in Ukraine, like a scrim pulled back on the vulnerabilities of monopoly power, be it by a company or a country. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, you look at how in the West, multinational companies have essentially been incentivized to move costs off their balance sheet, outsource things to the cheapest location look at labor as a liability instead of an asset. Well, you know what that leads to? That leads to a situation in which you cannot make basic pharmaceutical products and PPE. But even before the pandemic, it led to a situation in which you had massive risk within supply chains. I don't know if you remember the Rana Plaza factory collapse from, from 2011, where you had big Western multinational brands, H&M, Walmart, outsourcing to outsourcers to outsourcers who build a shoddy factory in Bangladesh, which collapses and kills 1,100 people. You know, that looked great in some corner office when a CFO was making the decision. It looked efficient, and I put that in quotation marks. It was not resilient. And we are now seeing the weaknesses in these very highly concentrated supply chains, and we know that we need to change things. So explain resilience, because you bring that up quite a bit, that they sacrifice resilience for the expediency of short-term profits and cheap labor and cheap... Yeah. 
Well, so so it means a couple things. First of all, it means geographic redundancy. You know, multinationals love to source things all in one place because it drives down prices. You know, think about sending all the semiconductor production to Taiwan. The problem is when Taiwan becomes a contested geographic territory, that you know creates problems for the whole world. But at a broader level, we need to rethink the price of things. You know, cheap is not as cheap as we thought. You think about the the t-shirt or the underwear, or the socks that, you know, any of your listeners might be wearing right now. They may look cheap on on you know, the price tag may look cheap, but when you factor in the cost of the carbon emissions that it took to tote them from Vietnam or from China, the labor standards with which they are made, was that forced labor in a concentration camp in Xinjiang? Was that where the cotton was was ginned and and the yarn was woven, what was the fuel cost to transport that product? You know, these are the things that you need to start tallying into the true price of a product. And it's worth thinking about the fact that this bill of goods, this neoliberal bill of goods that we were sold that, oh, we're going to outsource all of our jobs and we're going to get a lot of cheap stuff and that's going to make us all feel better. For starters, it, cheap is not cheap. Uh, number two, even those cheap socks and underwear and flat screen TVs have not made up for the fact that all the things that make us middle class, like healthcare, um, rising education prices, rising housing prices, they have have been going up at triple the rate the rate that other mm -hmm. products have been going down in prices. So the math really doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And you believe that COVID accelerated all this? It was it just made us realize, wow, wow, everybody running out getting toilet paper because they didn't have supply <laughs> chains. Well, <laughs> now everybody knows supply chain. Yeah, yeah, no, it's pretty funny when you hear you know the president using the word supply chain in the State of the Union speech. I never thought I would hear it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it if you think about it, just in terms of food systems, which is I know something that you were interested in speaking about. Pandemic hits, you have restaurants shut down and yet you have lines at grocery stores and you have shelves of empty products. Well, why is that? You know, shouldn't some of those things that are not being used in restaurants be able to just be put in grocery stores? No, because you've got two highly monopolized supply chains controlled by a handful of companies that don't talk to one another. That's what the neoliberal model has wrought. It's been great for the C-suite of those companies. It's been not so great for everybody else. Um, so we need to start rethinking that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have a chapter <laughs> called The Problem with Big Food. And I see a trend, talking to all my experts, in farming and food production towards a more localization, regional growers, even grow your own communities. If globalization is collapsing, as you see, is this trend going to accelerate now that we're going to see more... I mean, because of drought in the West where they can't grow it anymore, are they going to see more localization for that reason? Well, for sure. And, you know, you're bringing up a different kind of disruption, right? So we've been talking about geopolitical disruption. We've been mm -hmm. talking about the pandemic, but there's also climate disruption. And with food in particular, that's having a huge impact already. So most of the world's um, produce, healthy fruits and vegetables are farmed really in three regions. And one of the big growing regions is in California, but it's changing, right? The droughts, the fires. And one of the, the companies I looked at in my book is a vertical farming company that actually did very well during the pandemic because they grow things not in the ground, but up walls of, um, you know, of, of companies or of um, schools. They use not chemicals, but just highly targeted um, amounts of light and water to control growth. 
it's a very highly decentralized model. This is and very localized. I mean, the sense that you can you can do this anywhere. You could potentially do it in your own backyard. This is one of the ways of decentralized food production that's gaining steam because you know our growing seasons are just changing. It's it's interesting. Driscoll's the big berry company just made a big investment into vertical farming because as the CEO told me they have a handful of places that you can grow strawberries around the world. And if those change by just a couple of feet, they really, you know, they can't shift their production in a way that's cost effective to keep up with that. So we are going to have to look at much more localized methods of, of farming. And I think that those will be better for the environment and for people. If you think about what the big industrial farm system in the U.S. is set up to farm, it's mostly cash crops, corn and soybeans. A lot of that is going to feed not people, but cattle. Cattle farming is one of the heaviest carbon loaded industries that you can imagine. So it's bad for the the planet. And it's um, also bad for people in the sense that it monopolizes food production and puts it in the hands of just a few big companies. And it makes it so individual small farmers really can't make a living. Mm -hmm. We could have a whole new a whole program on um, vertical farming. And we have the real organic people in the Bionutrient Food Association. They would argue that a lot of the stuff that's grown in those vertical farms stuff doesn't have any nutritional value. So, I mean, that's a whole nother subject. But, you know, there, it's, a, it's a difficult thing because soil is really the way that you get really good vegetables vegetables and fruits that give you what you need nutritionally. But anyway, capitalism basically is based on exploiting and extracting, you know, unregulated cheap labor, sometimes unregulated extraction of natural resources. If the planet has a finite amount of water, minerals, wood, fish and arable soil, how can the focus always be on growth? Do you think that at one point <laughs> we will question. exhaust the source of this wealth? You know? Oh boy! Well, you know, you're getting to the deep, deep question. You know, and it's um, I you know, it's amazing. It's the deepest question in economics, and yet it's the question that nobody wants to ask, right? But I think it really is the question that we have to ask, and and I think that slowly the willful blindness is beginning to fall away. It's interesting to me that people in Silicon Valley that I speak to, you know, even rapacious venture capitalists, because they're sort of at the cutting edge of thinking about capitalism, they're actually willing to talk about a zero growth future and what that looks like. It's the economists and the conventional journalists that are not willing to talk about that. And yet the truth of the matter is that if the last 50 years were about pushing neoliberal globalization and growth, meaning GDP growth, just more, 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 cheap, 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 pushing that to its nth degree, then the last, the next 50 years, I think are going to have to be about essentially rethinking the model for sustainability and redistribution, because basically that's the problem. We've got a planet that's going to hell. I don't know if I can say that on the air, but- Yes, you can. Um, <laughs> and it's true. <laughs> okay. We've got a planet that's going to hell and we've got an increasing number of people. I don't even want to say working people I'm mean, or working class people. It's, it's everybody that is seeing their work disintermediated. I mean, this is another thing during COVID that I've been fascinated by. On the one hand- it created flexibility for work from home. I mean, I'm sitting in my office in Brooklyn doing this conversation with you. On the other hand, I think it may have set us up for the next massive wave of disintermediation of middle-class jobs. I had a conversation with the CEO. I was asking him about, you know, whether he's going to bring people back to the office or not. And he's like, well, 
We don't need to, but the thing is people don't realize if you can do the job in Tahoe, you can do it in Bangalore. And I was thinking, oh, here we go. Now mm-hmm. it's going to be it's going to be my job, your job, any job that can be done digitally that goes to a cheap labor country. Now, this is an existential crisis, of course, for the Democratic Party, because as we are trying to negotiate new trade agreements with, with Asia, the APEF negotiations, et cetera, there's a big call, understandably, from organized labor to be like, WTF, are you going to do to digital work what you did to blue-collar factory work in the 90s and in the noughties? You know, if so, man, I, I don't know. We're going to we're going to end up with an even worse politics than we have now. Mm, yeah. I'm really interested in the, uh, what the st- stress on the planet from global warming is, you know, for instance, you know, I'm trying to look at it from business point of view, you know, the rivers of the world uh, this year dried up a lot so that right. they weren't shipping on German rivers. And the biggest shipping company on the Mississippi said, if we can't ship America, it will grind to a halt. And that's just, that's, reality that was in the news and but yet corporations are delaying and diffusing the gold to get us to zero carbon growth and then this is keeping the planet on a path to overheating so it, this could disrupt business eventually and i'm just wondering what are corporations thinking you know that's a great question too as you were talking i was thinking you know corporations are ultimately profiteers they're they're not thinking beyond the next quarter except that's not totally fair. I mean, the truth is some of them are, but they have a collective action problem. You know, they need, I believe still, even in this kind of late stage capitalist world that we're in, they need a public authority to say, you have to do X, Y, and Z. In fact, you know, companies are lining up at the commerce department right now to be told what to do. Mm-hmm. We, we have to get the the political energy to tell them now that may require more complicated things like like campaign finance reform but yes to to answer your question ceos do realize that they are eating their own seed corn and i think that's one of the reasons that they are open a little bit more open to the idea of localizing and regionalizing production because they see that ultimately the old way can't hold Right. We're speaking to Rana Fogahar. She has a book out called Homecoming, The Path to Prosperity in a Post-Global World. And it's a film, too. Uh, Maybe we should talk a little bit about why did you do a film, which I thought was excellent. Um, Why a film along with the book? Well, you know, um, sadly, people don't read (laughs) as much as they used to. Boy, are you right. (laughs) Um, You know, it's incredible. I mean, the book just... I, I can say now, as the author of three serious nonfiction books, the the market for serious nonfiction in America is about sixty thousand people. That's the market, if you wow. can believe it. That's, of, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, of people that will buy more than one piece of literary nonfiction about you know a serious topic per year. That's that's the market. So, you know, you have to go into different mediums. And and it's a way, frankly, to create some emotion and put some people behind this. And I was very um, excited to be able to go and talk to some of these farmer activists on the ground in Missouri, as we did for the, the first film. We talked to some amazing scientists at the University of Wisconsin that are invent- literally inventing Star Trek-like gizmos to allow people to make food individually, you know, zap mm-hmm. it from air, water, and and um, and molecules uh, and electricity. We, we got 
got to talk to people that are at the heart of the sustainable food movement and the community farmers market movement in California. And we also got to talk to policymakers in Washington. So really putting faces to those stories is great. And by the way, on this coming Monday, the 21st, the second part of the film is being released. And that's going to look at how um, how to make retail and apparel more sustainable and local. Right. I love uh, your, your guy, Maxwell. He was great. He was my favorite. You know, while the globalization you write in your book has made the planet wealthier as a whole, the wealth has been concentrated largely at the very top among financial and man managerial elites who own the most assets. And to a certain extent, at the bottom, there's been some wage growth in countries like China. When Within most countries, however, inequality has also grown. Huge areas in many nations, rich and poor, have been hollowed out economically or environmentally degraded and left behind politically by globalization. So it, my question is, is globalization the enemy of the average person? I think neoliberal globalization has benefited um, the wealthy few in the West. The bargain was essentially, again, cheap capital for cheap labor. And so there's a, a really good UNCTAD study. The UN um, Trade and Development Group did a wonderful study just looking at the economic pie over the last 40 years and who has taken the largest piece of it. And the two single entities that have taken the largest piece are Western multinationals, mostly American, and China. Now, um, that's because China took a lot of that capital, employed a lot of Chinese people in you know, varying degrees of labor standards um, to make our stuff. So our industrial commons went there. Now, a lot of people say, well, we didn't want that work. We don't want to make uh, shoes and lighting fixtures. The problem, and I can tell you as the daughter of an immigrant engineer who started a manufacturing business, the problem is it's not just about making a single thing. It's about an ecosystem. You know, David Ricardo, who everybody always loves to quote about, you know, um, comparative advantage and, you know, nations should make what they're best at. We should do banking, let the Chinese make, you know, lighting fixtures. It does not account for the idea of an entire industrial ecosystem being outsourced. Even Ricardo, it's funny, in his writing back in the 19th century, thought that that would be impossible because Get this, he thought capitalists had a conscience. He thought that they had a sense of national duty and that they would have a, so much pride that they wouldn't want their work to be outsourced. I mean, clearly he, you know, he never dealt with Blackstone or, you know, went to a meeting of the World Economic Forum. Otherwise, he would have thought a little differently about this. But um, yeah, I think that for the vast majority of people, it has meant greater inequality and a disintermediation from work. And at a competitive national level, a disintermediation from innovation that I think has been bad for middle-class job creation. And you say that we need to think about converting <laughs> to a caring economy. What do you mean by caring economy? Well, you know, one of the things I'm looking at is what are the trends towards localization? And we've talked about reshoring and localization of supply manufacturing supply chains, which makes sense for all kinds of reasons from labor standards to environment to fuel costs to innovation but there's also a whole nother fast growing area of economy and that's care so in this country we have an aging society and we have a society that needs to be retooled for a digital economy from an educational standpoint those are care jobs healthcare education child care these are all care jobs they're the majority of fast growing jobs and they have to be done locally by and large i mean you can send your radiology screens to be done in India, maybe, but the majority of care jobs need to be done locally. So that's a that's a big opportunity that if you can really create 
uh, you know, some wage inflation and some dignity and some productivity, greater productivity in these jobs, you know, it could really set us up for a new kind of middle class work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think about uh, private equity firms. Do they need to be reined in? Because there's a lot of money there. And they're, they're, for instance, disrupting housing markets and so squeezing yeah. out many first time buyers. They seem to be just, you know, they're definitely on the path of what's good for the company, you know, make a profit. But it's really hurting uh, the average person. Oh, it totally is. I had a whole chapter on that in my first book, Makers and Takers. Private equity has destroyed single family housing in America. It's on track to destroy multifamily housing. They're even buying trailer parks, if you can believe it. I and know. It's crazy. Flipping them and trying to, you know, evict people. Sadly, to connect the dots between private equity and the care economy, private equity is buying, they've already bought up a lot of low-hanging fruit in the in the um healthcare industry, you know, dermatological practices, sports medicine practices with high margins, consolidated them force people out because, you know, I have a friend actually as a dermatologist didn't want to do the work anymore because he was forced to see a patient every 10 minutes. Mm. Um, if you can believe it, private equity is now buying nursing homes and hospice centers. I mean, think about what efficiency, again, I put that in quotation marks, it's going to look like in hospice. It's going to mean oh, disastrous uh, levels of care. So yes, I would love to see real limits on what these people can buy and transparency. We need a heck of a lot more transparency in that industry. Yeah, it's sort of like what's good for the the all of us rather than just for this small private equity firm. Or yeah, large. it's stunning. I mean, I don't, frankly, I, I, I don't know how these people sleep at night, a lot of them. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I agree with you. One thing in the, in the news yesterday or the day before, Mexico's recent decision on banning GMO corn and specifically glyphosate's modified crops. Um, is that part of the demise of globalization is you, you see it as a you know some of the ramifications that are going on in that area well yeah i see i see a whole rethink about industrial farming in general it's just as in so many cases with neoliberal globalization it's great for big companies you know but is it is it good for the soil is it good for health i mean we haven't even really gotten into the health ramifications of although you did touch on it and i, I think your criticisms about <clears throat> vertical farming have some merit. You know, I just was using that as one example of decentralization. Sure. Um, I think that just thinking about what is the overall price for something, not just the dollar price, but what does that do to the soil that then goes into our bodies that then gets racked up in our healthcare system, which in this country is so bloated. I mean, we are over double the cost of the next most costly system, which is Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And we have dramatically lower outcomes. A large part of that has to do with lifestyle issues like obesity, like diet, like the fact that we are producing triple, quadruple the amount of calories we need in, in foods we don't need, you know, junk food, but we don't have enough cal. We only produce at this in this country 30% of the calories we need in fruits and vegetables. Otherwise, we're importing them. Maybe we should rethink and rejigger all those things. Yeah, a lot of work to do, huh? Yeah. Well, finally, you know, this renegade economist, Herman Edward Daly, I'm, I'm wondering if you know about him. And, he, you know, he's, they say he spent his career questioning economics disconnected from environmental footing and moral compass. And if you're familiar with it, you have any comments on, you know, his passing and how it relates to what you've been writing about? You know, I I don't know a lot about him, but boy, that sounds right to me. Yeah, Daly, basically, he's just saying, you know, we can't do what we were talking about, which is unlimited exploitation. We have to try to figure out 
a regenerative process. I mean, that's a lot of the people I deal with are regenerative farmers and, and they're interested in making sure that we are putting back into the soil, for instance. So the future is good for the soil and for our, our crops. Well, a hundred percent. And I mean, I, I think ultimately we're going to need to get to a point where companies have a nutritional label on everything they make. You know, we, we, we've got to see the real cost of things to the commons. Otherwise, I don't know how long we've got left, you know, not to end on a bleak note, but on a positive note, this conversation has been great. You know, one thing that encourages me is that I am starting to see a lot of dot connection, a lot of silo busting on this topic. I mean, you know, it used to be people in economic circles, they thought about math, they didn't think about soil, but they're mm-hmm. thinking about soil now, you know, yeah. and business leaders are beginning to think about this policymakers are, um, you know, the film had a lot of uh, of that dot connection, which was a hopeful thing. Yeah, I, I highly recommend you check out Homecoming. It's you can get it on YouTube and see um, the film that Rana Fowerhara has put out. She's been my guest today, American author and associate editor of the Financial Times and CNN's global economic analyst. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thanks, Kevin. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. 